1: You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect and industrial designer Omer Arbel, who directs the design studio Omer Arbel office and is a co-founder and creative director of Bachi. A design and manufacturing company based in Vancouver and Berlin. Arbel cultivates a fluid position between the fields of architecture, sculpture, invention, and design. The objects and environments he and his colleagues create are at once natural and alien, reminding us of the otherworldly potential of common materials by focusing on their intrinsic mechanical, physical, and chemical qualities. I met with Arbel in June at OAO and Bocce's Vancouver headquarters where we talked about, among other things, his feeling early on in his career that he was at odds with architecture's monastic culture, and the steps Arbel took to establish a design practice that balances naive curiosity and free exploration with rigorous execution. We also talked about the productive isolation that a city like Vancouver affords, and the contradictions of authorship in relation to a methodology driven less by the designer and more by a material's inherent properties. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. What I'm most excited about when I look at your work and look at your practice is the position that you occupy between architecture and industrial design and, to a certain extent, art and sculpture. Um, And, um, I mean, you kind of slide between those disciplines or those fields quite easily and quite flexibly Mm -hmm. um, to the point where it's difficult to understand exactly how you understand yourself or your practice. And uh, I guess the trajectory of this conversation is, to a certain extent, to find out, you know, uh, what what the identity of the practice actually is or how it's changed over time. Um, And if we could start uh, at the beginning with the intention to study architecture. You studied architecture at Waterloo. I did. uh, In the late 90s. Uh, Yes, I
2: graduated in 2000.
1: Okay. Um, And then you went to work for um, a series of architects, including Enrique Morales. Correct. Who you've described as a kind of teacher or mentor. Yes. So, why don't we start there?
2: What was that experience like? And what kind of impact has it had on you? Um, yeah, a, a tremendous impact. I um, admired him his work uh, from afar since, since the earliest days of being an architecture student, especially the drawings. Um, and this was the sort of heyday of, of Barcelona as a center for interesting architecture. I think it's not anymore or less so anyways, but for a while there in the 90s and early 2000s, Barcelona was really interesting, and there was a really cool scene of very innovative work being actually built there, and he was the most lyrical of the protagonists of that era, um, and I really responded to his drawings and his um, his six or seven built works at the time, which he had executed with his um, ex-wife, Carmen Pinos. Later they split up, and um, during the era where I was in the studio, he was with, working with uh, uh, his second wife, um, Benedetta, and it, it changed the work a lot. But yeah, I was, was really admired him, and then I had this like romantic idea, I was in my early 20s, and I, was, I had this romantic idea of living in Barcelona, and just went there on a whim. Uh, and knocked on the door and he opened it he actually opened it which later I found out was kind of a rare thing mm. big giant man He's quite overweight he had a big beard and I just said ah I came from Canada because I want to work here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like come 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 in come in and come sit here and he uh, sat me down in his studio which was like a small tiny little cube of a room full of books and beautiful sort of objects and had had one big window looking out into his studio and I had to wait there for like two or three hours for him to come back Um, and during that whole time I could just see the goings on in his studio which was like so intimidating and serious because first of all, everyone was a lot older and secondly, he was playing opera Huh. so there's like this opera there's this opera soundtrack to these very serious architects making very serious work and i was just like thoroughly intimidated by the time he got back and then he just sat down and he just like he only had like seven minutes with me or something like that flipped through my portfolio like this like with the pages like super fast not paying any attention and just asked me when i wanted to start
1: huh
2: and then i i was like how i i started working with him and it was a great honor um he he, had, he died very shortly later. Uh, he died when he was 45 from a brain tumor. I don't know if you know the story. Mm-hmm. Very suddenly. And so I, was, I consider myself one of his very last students before his death. And had he not died, I probably would have still been there. I was, I was very content um, working in that environment, working for him, enlisting um, myself to his uh, vision. And What did I take away from that? I, I don't... Um it's hard to sort of pinpoint. I, I think the main thing is the, what it feels like, the sort of feeling of a studio of that caliber, a courageous studio of that caliber. Um, yeah, just, just the, the feeling of, of what it's like to work in a team like that, a really yeah. hi, highly functioning team that's really doing things that haven't been done before mm-hmm. as a matter of day to day sort of pragmatism it's a, it was a pragmatic office but we were doing really amazing things and and, uh, and that feeling is what I, I hope I can bring here or, um, um, or into the glass shop or into, into these places this sort of uncompromising, super courageous but also sort of um, playful and um, joyful environment which he sort of had
1: Maybe we should quickly just describe where we are so we're in uh, the Bachi headquarters. As this we- is all.
2: This is a kind of a, a, um, a head- the headquarters of all the different companies together. Mm-hmm. So we have a sort of constellation of companies, and at the heart, uh, let's say, or the head, or probably the heart of it is um, is my studio called OAO, which is stands for Omer Arbel Office, and that's a sort of creative hub of all these different companies. One of them is Bachi, which is a manufacturing company, um, and then we also have all kinds of other ventures that, that we creatively direct through our practice. And so after working for Morales, you moved back
1: to Canada. Yep. Uh, finished your architecture degree. I did, yep. And then moved to Vancouver where you worked for Pacquiao Architects. I did, yes. What
2: was that like in comparison to Morales? So I was, of course, attracted to them, first of all, because the caliber of work is so high. Um, And secondly, because they were working in my region, so I thought there would be a lot to learn about how to make buildings here, um, ambitious buildings here. But of course also because there was kind of a kinship at that time between their work and his. It wasn't overt, but projects like Strawberry Vale School or or, um, Seabird Island School or some of the early houses, the Barnes House, those houses, those projects had a kind of kinship. Mm. And so I felt like I was following a path And you worked on the Glen Eagles community site.
1: I did, yeah, that's right. I mean, you can kind of see, even in that project, a relationship to Mariah's I think so, yeah. Um, And if I was going to try and fumble my way through a description of why, they're similar. I mean, uh, there are elements that are kind of discrete and exposed, and people use this word tectonic. Tectonic, yeah. um, To describe that. Um, And then I guess the Pacos are known for uh, their interest in the region in which they build Mm -hmm. and the relationship to a place and the architecture of the place. Yes. Um, And maybe to a certain extent, Marias could be understood that way too. I I agree. I agree. Um, And then also, I guess, they're both kind of, you use this word protagonist a lot, I think, in in lectures you give or other interviews you give to describe certain figures in design and architectural culture. Um, And these two offices feel like they are protagonists in that sense and that they have an identifiable style or approach to design um, that is very easily recognizable. And, um, you know, one way of seeing it is as
2: a brand as well. Yeah, I I guess that's maybe a little... I think it's cynical to think yeah. of it as a brand. Uh, uh, it is, it ends up being, or these people have to have to sort of position it as a brand because that's the, um, the way you survive in this world, but I don't think of it as a brand at all. I think it's like a kind of mission. Mm. I think it's like a, at least in the case of Miralles, Miralles it was a mission, it was like a personal mission. But for Pekos, it was like, what I discovered is like, a, it was in a very monastic environment. It was very different, because Enrique Mirais was like an like exuberant man. There was a lot of laughter, and there was, was like a, a lot of joy. The, the, there was a lot of um, hard work, but it, was, it felt like th- there was a lot of uh, ex- exuberance, I guess, in the practice. Whereas Pekos was a very monastic, sort of quiet... Rigorous office where the work was being pursued in this sort of um, relentless way mm. by a team of very dedicated, very sort of quiet people, and so I don't know. It was culturally not a great fit for me. Uh-huh. Um, I, I love the work, and I I, um, I learned how to draw. I, I learned how to make working drawings there on the Colonel Eagles Community Center, mm. um, which is which is like a huge um, gift that that I. Um, take away from that experience, because working drawings is an art, uh, making working drawings that contractors build from, that's an art, and, um, and no one can do it like they do it in this region. It's a, ca- it's, a, it's a method that they've calibrated for this particular environment, for these particular procurement methods, and, um, and it's like huge, huge, um, they gave me huge shortcuts just yeah. by teaching me how to draw. Yeah. And, I, and because that was my first working drawing experience, um, I learned it right the first time I didn't have to unlearn anything mm. um, and that, that method has stayed with me, I've made my own adjustments to it since.
1: I'm interested in this tension and this inability to fit into um, what a lot of people might think of as a standard in architecture culture or office culture or like the culture of renowned practices mm-hmm. which is this kind of like dedication that one lives yeah. almost for the practice, yeah, yeah. you call it monastic which um, Resonates as well. <laughs> um, and so it seems like to a certain extent you were kind of turning away from that and looking for alternatives. Yes, I was. Um, you briefly worked for uh, Busby. Peter Busby, yeah, yep. Yeah.
2: Not briefly, four years. Oh, was, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. This is a larger scale commercial practice. Yep.
2: Big um, corporate office.
1: And it seems like this allowed you to start doing work on your own, in your own time as well. Exactly. Uh, and so the first projects that are now part of Omer Arbel Office's portfolio yeah. um, were being done during your time at Busby. That's in right. Yeah. And I think one of the first ones was a chair. Yeah.
2: Two, four. Yeah.
1: So this is it. You were living
2: on Main and Broadway. You know, you know everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was living on Main and Broadway in this building called Old Beautiful Brick Building called the Lee Building. And I had an apartment on the seventh floor, which was at the time like unbelievably cheap compared to the prices of today. Um, and my landlady let me use the there's a kind of there, there's a kind of what, what used to be a must have been a water tower on the roof, but this weird two story little structure. Um, uh, and the, and during the era that I was living there, there there was a huge forty foot container, which was, had a huge billboard on it which later the city of Vancouver took down as a result of a lawsuit. But while I was working there, that, basically my studio was inside of this huge billboard, 40-foot billboard, it was amazing. And she let me use it for free mm. because at the time, main and Broadway was um, just kind of a lot of heroin on the streets and a lot of people would come up the fire escape and, um, and shoot up on the roof and so, me up there making noise and listening to music and, and working in the evenings was a great deterrent. Mm. So it was kind of was good for everyone.
1: And the, I mean, you were you were working tirelessly during this period. This chair alone took I don't know how many hundreds of hours to make.
2: Each one was about forty hours. But the the reason why it was so painful, such a painful experience, was <laughs> because uh, the, the chair was cast in resin in layers um, on its side. And res- the particular resin I was using has a curing rate of about three and a half hours, and I could I could only pour between six and twelve, maybe nineteen at the most millimeters at a time. Um, if I were to pour any more, there would be too much heat in the exothermic reaction; the piece would crack. Mm. So there was this window of time every three and a half hours where the resin would cure, the one layer would cure, expel all its energy, and still be. Um, the chemical reaction will not have completed yet, such that another layer could still mo- bond on a molecular level. Mm-hmm. And so, the worst part about that era was that I had to basically live in three and a half hour increments, including my sleep, my work, everything. Um, yeah. And so, that it was convenient because my studio was right up just upstairs. But I would have to sl- like sleep in three and a half hour intervals, which kind of nicely corresponds to to an REM sleep cycle. Right. Luckily, but or Buckminster
1: Fuller's Dynaxian sleep, yeah, it was
2: just like it was really a strange time, and I, I did that for for like half a year or something.
1: what I'm curious about is this impulse to design objects after having worked in architecture mm-hmm. um, because really you could have branched out and started doing house extensions instead, you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or interiors
2: and so um, why why this object why I was uh, I've always been g- good at it, I guess. I, I mean, in, even in architecture school, I was really good at making stuff. And the exercise of model building to um, to describe architectural projects, theoretical architectural projects, student projects, was more exciting to me than any of the other aspects of, of architecture. To the point where the, the model building exercise, by the time I was graduating, was just such an extreme. It was all I did. I just built these like majestic, fantastic objects that. Had representational qualities, but they were secondary to the presence of the actual uh, model as a as a work uh, huh. on its own in its own right. And to the point where I got heavily criticized, um, where you know my professors would just ask, well, "Like, what do you? You're not even you don't even care in a way about what the model is express stands for. You just care about what the piece is on it in its own right." So. And, I, so, and I've always had great facility with my hands. I'm just, that's kind of, you know, all these other methods of generating work, drawing or modeling on the computer, they're all secondary to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Another question I had, I mean, the way you're describing making the chair
1: uh, and its chemical or physical properties, this is a theme that runs through all yeah. the work at yes. L.A.O. and a- a- Bachi. This, this very, like, intense interest in materiality and what materials do... Um, First is what we can do to materials. It's more like what we can learn from materials or um, how we can be apprenticed to materials. Yeah. Um, and so even in this early project, this chair, your understanding of the resin and how, uh, how it works, how it sets and how it adheres, and how it can be pigmented and all that and its kind of tensile yeah. or structural qualities, um, to a certain extent is what was informing the design of the chair Correct. itself. Yeah, and I'm also interested in this like um, this problem you had in architecture school of seeing the model first and foremost um, as a thing in and of itself versus a thing that stands for something else. Correct. It's like there's no analogy, whereas oftentimes I feel like architecture is all about analogy. Yes. So already there's this kind of um, um, struggle. Or a way of seeing that is in opposition to traditional
2: architectural ways of thinking. Maybe I, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yesterday we were thinking about, you know, right now. So right now we have, you know, after a decade of not constructing anything, we're we're building. We're actually building again. We're building. We have four houses in the pro, in the practice now that are all all on their way to being built. One of them in halfway through and. Um, and that's after a decade of not building anything. And, and all of these projects include um, elements that are derived from a process that we've invented. In other words, we've, we sort of construct a, a method of making and then allow, allow it to sort of unfold. And it makes the spaces to some extent. It's an improvisational way of working almost in that um, you don't plan the, the, the danger is that um, it goes it flies in the face of all kinds of procurement methods that exist out there for making architecture and the conventions of presentations to clients and mm. these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. see so I think the only way that it would work is if it was one of our buildings that we're constructing for ourselves, were with us in the role of, of client and architect, because it would require a tremendous amount of trust that i can't imagine any. Anybody undertaking, any client, any traditional client undertaking. There's so much
1: risk involved.
2: So much risk. So, th- this is another question
1: I had uh, the interest in provocation. And, like, um, I've read other interviews where um, the people who are speaking with you, they're not always sure whether you're being serious, uh, whether you actually mean it, or if it's just a kind of, um, again, provocation. And oftentimes it seems like you really do mean it. In this case, it sounds like you really do want to just build as you go and have it as you build. Yeah. Um, and I was warned before I spoke with you that uh, things could get quite outlandish or very speculative very quickly. Huh. Um, so I guess the question I had around that is, um, you know, other projects, other speculative projects that the office has um, engaged with. The first one, which, so just for listeners who aren't familiar, your portfolio of work is numbered. Mm-hmm. And um, to some extent, um, it kind of levels the field so that a light and a building and an electrical socket would just have a number, and those are all different projects that the office has designed. But the very first project, which is Zero, is uh, the proposal to demolish (laughs) the Canadian um, pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. Yes. And then there's another one, 53, which is... um, a proposal to drown parts of False Creek in Vancouver. <laughs> you saw that one, yeah. And bury both uh, Pacific and Expo Boulevards. Yeah. Um, so, I mean,
2: I want to ask, like, how serious are those <laughs> proposals? I thought the False Creek one, well, the, well, well, I'll speak to both of them. I mean, the, the, de- the Malaysian one was totally serious. Everybody hates that pavilion, and later they kind of did. I mean, two or three years after our application, we applied twice for the same um, with exactly the same package. We just erased the date and put in the new date two years later. Um, and they actually kind of did destroy it. Mm. I mean, the, the recent exhibition by Jeffrey Farmer, so they, they listened to us. They just couldn't stomach, you gotta see this letter, that, I think it's, it's posted online, on my site, yeah, the criminal intent letter. There, if they were asking, they were just wanted to verify that I had no criminal intent in proposing to destroy the pavilion. Everybody hates that pavilion and have for the entire history of that, of that building. And what about the drowning of the false creek? I think that was an actually pretty responsible uh, economic f- formula because what I was giving back, the, the way to fund that, I mean the way to critique that proposal is to say, oh, how do you pay for it? But the way we were proposing to fund it is by developing a huge amount of waterfront real estate mm. So that's the only thing sort of Vancouver has in the way of, of um, huge economic generators that operate on the, inf- on the infrastructural level. It's so exciting,
1: I think, to um, hear proposals like this uh, from, a, from a designer who does also make prolifically um, because uh, I guess it gives me hope <laughs> that there are p- other possibilities. I think the challenge of, that a lot of architects face uh, who kind of remain... Um, Um, in a more conventional system and work almost exclusively with buildings is that um, we're dealing with regulations, we're dealing with uh, building control, financial constraints, anxieties from client, risk-averse clients. And I think the possibilities close down very quickly, the perceived possibilities for what architecture can be. Right. Um, Then on the other hand... um, you know, speaking with someone like you, who's coming, I think now, from an industrial design perspective, or a kind of sculpture-making perspective, or an iterative, exploratory, experimental perspective, architecture becomes uh, a test site uh, with very little constraint because um, oftentimes the clients are very forgiving that you work with because you can be selective about the kind of work that you take on in the first place. I guess what I'm saying is like the possibility for invention in architecture seems so limited now. I think for me, the question is like, how do we open that up again? And it seems like your approach to opening that up is to think first about
2: experimentation and then how that can be scaled up. Yeah, I, I believe that's, that's one of the things that we do and that's just because that's how who, who I am and who we are. But I think the, the other uh, major... Way that we can infuse architecture with uh, new ideas is is changing procurement methods. I think that the procurement methods for architecture are inherently conservative. There's always there's always this this huge amount of effort, uh, um, uh, you know, focused on on predicting how cost, predicting schedule, these kinds of things are. Um, quantified in a, in a very loose way at the initial stages of a project, and they build a kind of set of expectations that everyone has to measure up to in the team, and that, that's the, those are the project killers, in my opinion. Mm. The fact that constraints are placed even before the project exists. Mm. Um, so I think that the main thing that needs to change is the, is the, is the way in which we uh, interact with other professions and and funding bodies to deliver these buildings. And, and the only way that I've been able to do it is to, is to just try as much as possible to assume the role myself. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that means I'll build way less buildings in my life because it's, it's going to be a handful of houses and we're going to um, construct a new headquarters for ourselves in the next five years and that'll be a big, sizable building. Hmm.
1: I mean, what's interesting about this, this kind of question we're talking about in terms of, I guess, the freedom that an architect can afford themselves um, and um, in becoming their own client to a certain extent, is that the the way that your business is structured? Maybe we can talk about this for a bit. Um, um, I guess as an industrial designer, there are certain products that you've um, designed and mass produced mm-hmm. that have become incredibly lucrative. Yes. Um, that, in a sense, support the speculative work. Correct. And allow you to take on the role of your of being a client. That's right. Um, and I guess there's one in particular I want to talk about, which is kind of like the uh, iconic object uh, that many would associate with you or the office, which is the number 14
2: light. This is the first Bachi light. Yeah, of all all my works, that one has sort of entered um, culture in a a much more ubiquitous way. And the the
1: story behind, I
2: guess, its quote-unquote discovery is that um, you
1: brought it to... Uh, the International Contemporary Furniture Fair in two thousand five.
2: Yeah, uh, this was in New York, and you met the entrepreneur Randy Bishop. I had known him before. Um, I was already working on an interior for him as a he's my business partner now. Okay. Um, I had worked. I was working for him at the time, uh, just designing an interior, and we, so we, we knew each other. Um, and the fortuitous part was that he was happened to be in New York at the time, and and very sort of bored. And, yes, had an interest in design and manufacturing. And then there's
1: also this person, Nasir
2: Casmali. yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Who I've read is responsible for bringing a lot of European design into North America. Yeah. And he maybe spotted the 14 Yeah, he. Yeah, so
2: all these things sort of came together at the right time. It was like um, Nasir lo- sort of loved it and said um, that he would... Uh, represent it or sell it I guess if, if it were if I could only find a way to make it basically mm-hmm. and then Randy my now partner um, was like hey let's start a company together let's make this light mm. and those two things happen independently of each other and I just kind of added the two together
1: briefly about running a business and the practicalities behind that Um, and I guess also the the challenge of like running a business that is spread um, so far across so many disciplines because you have obviously you must have industrial designers working for you as well as craftspeople um, who are probably specialists in in glass in particular Mm -hmm. Um, then also architects
2: and some people with a sculpture or art background too and so like um, accountants and assembly yeah, workers, uh-huh. and we have graphic designers, and we have all kinds of our production directors. And, uh,
1: so how, like, how, is the, how is the business structured in a way that makes all of these different disciplines
2: kind of cohere or work together? Mm, it's hard. It's been, well, a, a, we're over 14 years old, so it's taken that long. Now there's a kind of really amazing renaissance where everybody... Gets along, um, but it, it's taken a while to get there. It's good to find the harmonious way to um, almost like weave a, a tapestry of different personalities, um, mm-hmm. different skills. Um,
1: Maybe it'd be helpful if we like looked at another more recent object, sure, and just like quickly chart its development from like an early impulse or intuition into a product that's marketed internationally.
2: Okay. Um, can you pick one? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, like a recent one? Yeah. The, the difference is that now there's a kind of infrastructure for all this stuff. Hmm. So it's relatively easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my team and I come up with an experiment in a, in a sort of analog environment. We just sort of play around. And then there's inevitably a moment which we call a discovery. Which Where we learn something interesting or see something interesting in the work, and then from there the process turns into a kind of um, obsessive um, uh, ref- refinement. We, we kind of successfully refine whatever the discovery was. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into a sort of another sort of department in our organization where, where we start overlaying um, pragmatism, so we start modeling it in 3D, you start. Determining what its scale is, considering what it wants to Um, be—is this a sculpture? Does it just want to be itself? Does it want to have utility in some sense? If so, what is the utility? Uh, A lot of that. Then we start thinking. Also, we start considering what I keep saying is like the sort of delivery method. How does this piece enter the world? Does it go into a gallery? Does it go? You know, do we sell it online on the internet Mm -hmm. and, and? do we make a thousand of them, or do we make ten of them, or do we make twenty thousand, or five hundred thousand of them, or, or or do we make just one? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, those are big questions, and each of those each of those um, sets of answers guides the work forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start sort of developing componentry if we need to, or um, or building relationships externally to our um, to our own studio. So now so what I'm trying to say is like it's, it's, um, we have the luxury of, of momentum now, which we didn't when we began. When, when we began, there was a kind of do-or-die feeling. Every, every decision was kind of the, the whole thing could fold if, if it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 14 was like that. 14 needed to be successful in order for everything else to work. Mm-hmm. If, um, but now there's a kind of much more targeted and... Um, Relationship-based way of 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 determining the path of each of the explorations. Mm -hmm. I
1: mean, you've described just in terms of like the way the practice is run now that there's a second brain working (laughs) um, that's operating outside of the kind of immature mind of the inventor. Yeah. There's a so on the one hand there's this kind of cultivated naivete. Yes. Yeah. Of the inventor slash um, uh, tinkerer. And then on the other side, there's this quite, um, quite developed and rigorous and uh, pragmatic mind that kind of edits things, correct? And then um, decides on production and distribution. Mm -hmm. Like that happened relatively
2: recently. What got you over that hump, or what established that second brain? It's a team. Well, first of all, it has it's it's me um, uh, attaining some level, hopefully, of maturity. where I understand my strengths and my weaknesses and augment my weaknesses with the strengths of others, um, including the, my partner Randy is a big part of it, but many, numerous other people here in the studio who are really good at things that I'm not good at. I mentioned the word brand earlier, mm. or, or how to construct a business, or how to build packaging, or how to store things, or how to ship mm. them, or how to show them, or who to work with externally. These, these are all collaborative decisions. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm at the helm of, the, of defining the crea- the, our mission, our creative mission. Mm-hmm. But I'm only one of many people when it comes to all the other decisions that bring that mission forward.
1: So, what you are just saying um, got me thinking again about architects like Marias or the Pet Cows where there's an identifiable language architecturally. and uh, You call that grammar as well in terms of the kind of forms that are used. Um, and then this, this kind of links to this question of brand as well. And maybe it's a cynical uh, link to make, but when we're talking about products and we're talking about the way they're distributed and marketed, we can't. We have to, you, We have you to have talk to, about yes. a brand as well. Yeah. So, you um, know, talking about collaboration and the way that so many different forces and people are kind of inputting into the, the conception and production of objects now in your office, um, it reminded me of um, something you said before about, um, I guess, authorship and ego, and so uh, you're describing the process that the office undergoes when they develop new work and you're saying that you learned your ego was an obstacle to achieving great work. Yeah. Um, That over the past four or five years, you've been trying to step backwards in the authorship process. And instead of applying an idea to material, uh, you're trying to open up, and I'm quoting you here, pockets of time where you experiment in an analog way without any kind of predetermined direction or intent and essentially let the material tell you what it's going to be yeah, and then it, then it makes me wonder. Like, so if the brand is Omer or Arbel Office,
2: yeah,
1: um, there is a kind of. I mean, I understand why it is, but there's a there's a kind of tension or opposition to the methodology itself, which is very um, egoless or identityless. Or the identity is the material, not the author. Do you ever think about? Yes,
2: that? yes. That's you've identified a, a, a huge area of. Of, of uh, interrogate, personal interrogation that I undergo all the time. Because you're right, that's what I say out there. I say that the materials are telling me. But I had a recent epiphany that came. Uh, we have an exhibition. You should check it out right now at the sphere. Sorry, I'll go you've been. So you, you saw that the the, you saw the images of the glass that are the cut glass mm-hmm. on the wall, mm-hmm. and um, these and are with the copper mesh. The copper mesh. The the discarded uh, parts of the 84 vases. Um, so let's they, just quickly, just so we can. Because people listening will have no idea. Yeah, right. Um, There's a a fabric formed. um, So the the exhibition is about our work with concrete and alternative methods of casting concrete. And in this particular case, we um, explored the idea of casting concrete into fabrics. So what we're showing at the exhibition are a series of slices of a cone shape, a hollow cone shape that we've built using this method. And what they end up looking like are sort of Sort of like funny, cloudy uh, donuts. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, the, and I, I, despite great opposition, I also included in the exhibition um, 40 photographs of, of the cut ends of 84 vases, which are a product in our portfolio. A uh, piece of glass that's blown in a particular way to, to um, where white glass and clear glass meet across a copper mesh barrier and they make this beautiful geometry as a result. And then we chop off their ends to reveal the the, uh, the strange um, sort of puffy donut shape again mm-hmm. um, of uh, that that results from that that um, results from that interaction with copper. And so, but the reason I included those two images, those two pieces in the exhibition, is because I, of, a, of an even more recent epiphany to the quotation that you bring up, which is that there is actually a subconscious geometric language that keeps coming up in all of these works and they're made in different ways with different materials t- with, at different scales with different contexts. Some of them are at the scale of a building. Some of them are for a gallery. Some of them are a mass-produced items. item. Um, and they, and so there is, if you start, so especially when you start cutting them, you start seeing these geometries that repeat themselves and that begs the question of whether or not there is some voice or some... Intention, aesthetic, purely aesthetic intention, behind the process-driven decision-making that I have. Um, mm. I don't have the answer to that. But so when I talk about my, the receding of the ego, I, that is my method. I do let the materials... I, I, I encourage the materials to kind of teach me. But there is obviously a moment of... an editorial moment in that process where I do say, oh, add more electricity. But i actually adding more electricity because I want a specific aesthetic extreme to emerge. Hmm. Not because I'm just like, hey, let's see what happens. I guess, on some subconscious level, because otherwise the work wouldn't have this, 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 it's almost like building blocks. They look like they are in the same family, but they can't be because they're so vastly different.
1: When you said add more electricity, you're talking about a specific project where you electroplated copper-wired objects, yeah, and through that process of electroplating over and over again, these very strange forms emerge. Mm-hmm. When you talk about like decisions to start and end a process, Yeah. Um, some architects and designers would hear that as being like very algorithmic, where um, you're designing a process, and then as a designer, you become an editor or a curator, and you decide where, where that process ends. And then the final result is just where you've stopped it. Yeah, Uh, it's just very like digital way of thinking, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you had there's a conversation I think at um, my notes, uh, Inform Interiors, um, that you had with the curator Glenn Adamson. Glenn Adamson, and he drew an interesting uh, analogy between I guess the analog work you do and the digital digital culture that it's immersed in. It didn't really land, I think, when he put it out there, this kind of theory of the practice uh, as almost offering a solution to um, the perils of digital culture. Um, and I want to have another go at it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I, to me, um, this, this intense interest in, in materials themselves and their inherent properties uh, does come as a relief. I mean, it's incredibly satisfying to see for example, I don't know, to look under a petri dish um, and and kind of discover this new world at a different scale. And that's what I feel like a lot of the work coming out of this practice is doing. You're looking differently at very common materials, be they glass or metal uh, or whatever, and you're applying very conventional processes to them, but in a way that uh, results in very surprising outcomes. And it's all about this kind of Fascination with the material world. And I guess as a, as a subject of digital culture, as someone who's completely engulfed by it and captive in it and immersed in it, when I see the work, I feel happy. That's great. <laughs> and I feel, I feel like the chains are slightly loosened. Great. And I can look outside again. And I, I, I don't know. I think there's a kind of environmental tangent that could be followed there. And, uh, I mean, just speaking about that, um, there's an argument that you have about, um, in terms of sustainability, about designing objects that um, people live with, that they carry with them throughout their lives, that potentially accrue value over time, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, isn't often the case with industrial design, or even architecture now, disappointingly. True, yeah. Like, do you have other like? What are your thoughts about? I guess your practices' relationship to ecology or environmentalism or sustainability
2: beyond that point. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's like. If you if you want to hear something really outlandish, let's hear it. Really, really weird. It's like there's so I think. It's very clear to me, and this you might think, oh, he's crazy or whatever, but it's very clear to me that we're on the eve of a, of, a, of many enormous technological advancements that could radically change what humans are, where humans live, how humans exist, um, what does it mean to be a human being. And One of them is space travel. There's, like, um, interface between computers and, and the human mind, and there's... Um, what kinds of fascinating things happening with genetics. Or, so, so I think that there's, um, there's this strange uh, moment in time now. Like I, When I grew up, I didn't even have a computer. I remember my first computer I got when I was 13. So there's this weird generation that I'm part of that straddles the, potentially the biggest exponential increase in scientific knowledge and technology in the history of our species. That possibly transforms our species entirely and radically into mm-hmm. new dr- directions, including increasing lifespans, travel to other parts of the solar system, or even further. So I think that there's um, uh, the way we should think about the current crisis, ecological crisis is to just apply our tools, to to real, to mobilize our tools. You know, like, I don't remember what the statistics were, was, but but during the space, the so-called space race, there's only, it's only 20 years or 15 years or something like that, where there was a tremendous amount of resources applied by, at the time, the United States and the the USSR and everyone wanted to get to the moon first. And they did it in 17 years or something like that, a completely impossible task. And I think humans are capable of that if there's a direction, if there's a very direct focus, an enormous amount of resources applied. And I think that's how we solve the current economic crisis. So I think it's almost kind of a red herring to talk about whether or not we should use jet fuel or to fly to places and all these kinds of things. Of course we should. We need to travel to have ideas. We need to meet other people from other places. That's not how we solve the crisis. We solve the crisis using what humans are good at, massive ingenuity focused towards a specific goal. We can do it, or I mean, and we've done it previously with horrible things like world wars and these kinds of things. Like when a huge collective of human beings apply themselves towards specific goals with resources, miraculous things can happen, and that's how we solve the current ecological crisis. And I think it's not by um, you know, we of course we should recycle and we should use. Like, we use recycled glass or whatever. Of course, these are, these are sort of things we have to do. And what I said before about building things with cultural value, we have to do all of those things. We have to be absolutely... Um, you know, it's, it's like we should think of it as an emergency. We should think of the climate crisis as an emergency.
1: Mm.
2: But how do you see your practice fitting into that? Yeah, so, so we, make, we make things. And we, so, so back to the thing of, like, okay, imagine... 50 years a 100 years from now, there might be colonies of humans living on other planets or around space stations or on meteorites or whatever. So, or in the asteroid belt or on Mars, or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so, in the world, and, and, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond, 500 years from now, or 1,000 years from now. So 1,000 years from now, we can't even fathom, right? Uh-huh. So what is the relevance of these objects that I'm making or these buildings that I'm designing 1,000 years from now? Whereas if we look a 1,000 years back, we can relate to things that were built a thousand years ago. Cathedrals, for example. Those things resonate with us in a way that we can absorb and understand as human beings of today. Um, Notre Dame Cathedral burnt down. Mm. It's a huge tragedy. Everyone can feel it. Why? Will we be able to interact in the same way with buildings a thousand years from now with different kinds of gravity and different kinds of humans that are part machine and part whatever or like have Mm. wings or who Mm. knows? You know, so 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 I think that the... um, the, what I hope to do here in our practice is make work that follows, that has a kind of cultural relevance to this very strange moment in time right now. And what it means later is completely secondary in a sense, but I think that if we, if we are, um, if we are r- rigorous to this time and place in human history, then we make work that's culturally relevant and does have a longevity simply because of what it, what, what it embodies or, or, the, or the fidelity it has to the, to, to the uh, zeitgeist, mm, if you want to mm. use a, a word. Okay,
1: so this is an interesting point that maybe we could close on, and it has to do with the decision to remain uh, in Vancouver, yeah. as opposed to setting up practices uh, in larger cultural capitals internationally. I know that there is an office or a studio in Berlin and that maybe something in London as Uh, well.
2: We have a couple of people working in London.
1: Um, But uh, just on this point about staying in Vancouver, you've mentioned elsewhere that um, the reason that you're here um, in a certain sense is to escape the zeitgeist and to not be uh, influenced by the kind of aesthetic inertia, as you've called it, Mm -hmm. of other designers. Um, which would be the case if you were based in a city like London or New York or wherever Um, and so on one hand it seems like there's a retreat from influence and a retreat from this idea of zeitgeist to a certain extent and that the practice is much more introspective or insular it's definitely looking inwards for um, this essence of what um, what it is it's trying to do and uh, Vancouver seems to afford the luxury of that um, isolation and that there's, there's not really this aesthetic inertia present here. Um,
2: so when you say zeitgeist... What do I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah. I guess um, that's a good question. I think, I think creative people have to, have to have enough time to do their work. And I think that the, the bad thing that happens is that as soon as you reach your 40s and you have some measure of success, there's so many competing things that tear you away from your work, running a business, um, um, participating in, in sort of like um, uh, in the information age in the sense of having to take interviews and put things out there i'm pulling you away from no no you're doing (laughs) this is good because this is a good conversation like a lot a lot of the things i do are not this is a really um this conversation is great because it forces me to think about things i haven't thought before you've Mm. done a great job with these questions i welcome this kind of interview as whenever i can because it it helps me but most of the interviews i take are not like this Mm. you know um my point is that there's, there's, or you have to travel to certain places to exhibit work, or you have to do, take injuries, or this, 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 like talk to people. And it's like the protagonist of the firm, who's the person who's, oh, I see people starting to arrive. Mm-hmm. We still have 12 minutes. Okay. Um, up. The protagonist of the firm who's, who's, who's so important, hopefully, to the vision of what's involved, their time becomes... The, their time, their t- the time they have to sit and work becomes like a narrow and narrower like I have a family now these kinds of things like I have less and less time to actually sit and think and make and do and that's a tragedy and I think maybe when I think about Vancouver I have a lo- I have way more time to do the, the, the actual work than I would in a different place where there was that event tonight that I had to go to or I would be insulting someone if I didn't go or, or or have to go see that exhibition all the time. You know, like you're just torn in a million different directions in those places. And yes, you're responding to the inertia of others, but I think the as I get older the, the best thing about working in Vancouver is that I can actually spend hours a day, hours and hours of my day focused on the task. Um, Whereas elsewhere, if I was working elsewhere, I don't know. I think I would have to like artificially create that uh, somehow. Just like turn off all my my devices and go into a cave with no windows and just like and just do some work. I don't. I don't know. It's it, it's Vancouver's great because it's so. It's such a. It's a, it's a chilled out it's a chilled out it's a chiller it's a chiller city it's, it's a chill city it's like <laughs> you could just go meander to work on your bike and then just do some work and at the end of the day go home and make dinner and put your daughter to bed and, <laughs> it's, it's nice it's just like a nice life you can live a nice life hmm. um, whereas I think it gets to be kind of in, in, the, uh, in London or I lived in London for a while it's like it's uh, the pace of life is just punishing It's punishing. There's everything has to have. There's the, the 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 even just financial inertia of every decision. Everything is so expensive. Everything has to work. The space you don't have much space because space is at such a premium. So you have to make small things in small environments. Everything has to prove itself financially before it even emerges. These kinds of pressures choke the creative process, Mm. and I think they. there's less of that here. It's starting now to also happen here, but it's, there's just less of it here. But and yet it's still connected to the cultural capitals because the other thing is I could go and live in a village somewhere, and, or, in a, or in a shack mm-hmm. and by the beach or something like that. But of course, there's a balance there too that you need. You need contact with other people. You need to see things that inspire you. You need to be um, surrounded by an infrastructure that can support your ideas. So. Vancouver, for me, I'm not saying this is a universal, everybody has their own place where they thrive, and mm. I'm sure some creative people thrive and would thrive better in a place like London than here. But for me, this is perfect. Mm. This is just exactly the right balance of, of, um, of isolation and, and connectedness.
1: Omar, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. <music> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Sam Wilkes. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Omer Arbel, and special thanks this week to Paul Christian, Victoria Victoria, and Philip Materna. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.